Right, so over this Easter period, the theme is rescue. It's going to be based on Exodus chapter 14, and we'll keep referring back to that story. Uh, And of course, in that chapter in Exodus 14, we know that God rescues Israel from slavery. They cross the Red Sea, and they begin their journey to the promised land. And to introduce this, we're going to watch a clip from a very famous film called The Great Escape. Well, sadly, uh, he didn't quite make it, didn't have the resources to do that, but we do know a man who can. And uh, this morning, what we're going to do, in fact, is to look at the Exodus story, which is in the Old Testament, but see how it works out in the New Testament. Of course, Israel did make the great escape. Uh, They escaped from Egypt and I want you to see this morning how that story is prophetic and how it points forward uh, to an even greater escape that we read of in the New Testament. So in fact, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm picking up at verse 10. Hebrews 2 and verse 10 where the writer says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters, In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely... It is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, 
in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so what I want us to do this morning is actually to see the Old Testament in the New Testament. And this is the Exodus story in the New Testament. So we're going to pick up a number of points from this. The first thing about the Exodus is it is about an escape to glory. And it's there in verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And really, the writer here has given us the best news first. If you go back to the Exodus, we know that it took 40 years for the children of Israel having escaped from slavery to actually reach the promised land. They had a leader who took them forward, and that was Moses. But there was 40 years before Moses got them to the edge of the promised land. We need to understand that this is prophetic, because in the gospel, we have a leader. We have a perfect saviour who has pioneered our escape to the promised land, but our promised land is glory. We've got a perfect saviour who has pioneered our escape to glory. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but I need to mention something here, and that is about Jesus being made perfect. Did you notice that in verse 10? It speaks of Jesus, uh, uh, the pioneer of our salvation, who is made perfect through what he suffered. And that may strike you as a bit strange, because surely you'd say Jesus is perfect. That's a thing that we know, a thing that we confess, that Jesus was without sin. So we need to recognize that when it refers to Jesus being made perfect, it is not referring to either his character or to his morality. Jesus was without sin. But through suffering at Calvary, Jesus became our perfect Savior. Right? So always perfect in the sense of being without sin, perfect in character, perfect in morality. But at the cross, where Jesus gives his life for us, he becomes also our perfect saviour. And he has pioneered our escape to glory. Now, a pioneer is the first one. A pioneer is the one who breaks through somewhere for the first time, but then leads others on. In a sense, a pioneer is one who blazes a trail. Uh, back in 1953, two very famous men, Hillary and Tensing, were the first two people to actually reach the top of Mount Everest. They were the pioneers. But since then, because they did it, over 4,000 people have actually reached the top of Everest. In fact, some days, apparently, at the bottom of Mount Everest, there is now a queue of people waiting to ascend the mountain. And so what Hillary and Tenson did in 1953, for the first time, they pioneered the way to the top of that mountain. Now thousands have followed on. Well, Jesus has blazed a trail to glory. After his death and resurrection, he didn't just disappear, but he ascended to glory, and he's going to bring us there as well. Now, how can I describe this glory to you? Well, in a sense, I can't. I don't know if you remember, but Paul gives an account in Corinthians of how he had a kind of out-of-body experience. Paul says, I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body, but he describes himself being caught up to paradise, to the third heaven. And then 
he says this rather extraordinary thing. He says, but I can't tell you anything about it. And obviously for Paul, being caught up to paradise was such an amazing experience, it was beyond description. So how do I describe this glory to you? Well, really, I can't. But I can just mention a few things. I can mention the fact that we'll be there in resurrection bodies, that these bodies will be transformed into the likeness of the body of Christ. I can mention the fact that we will enjoy a fully regenerated and restored creation. I can mention the fact that we'll even see God face to face. We're told that in Revelation chapter 22. And in some way, we will look at the face of God, and God will look at us and acknowledge us as his sons and daughters. And it's important in the Christian life, as we follow behind Jesus, who has pioneered the way to glory, that even as in the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites were following Moses and anticipating the promised land, so we following Jesus need to anticipate the glory, because that is where we are headed. Our pioneer has broken through. Now, secondly, we see that the Exodus is also about holiness. In verse 11 here of Hebrews chapter 2, it says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And as you follow the theme of the Bible's teaching, Old Testament and New Testament, you will see that God has always desired to have his own people. And God's own people, his own nation, are referred to as a holy people, which actually means two things. Holy means that they are a people set apart for God, but holy also means that they're becoming more like God in their lifestyle. And if you go back to the book of Exodus and into chapter 19, uh, you'll see this being expressed. This is Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Now remember that God has brought his people out under the leadership of Moses, out of slavery, across the Red Sea. They're going to the promised land, and this is what he says about these people. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says to Moses, these are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So God brought his people out of slavery across the Red Sea in order to establish them as his holy people, his holy nation. And in fact, it's the same with us, because you come back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, and the writer says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So God wants us now, New Testament people, to be his holy people. We are set apart for God, and also we are becoming in our lifestyle more like God. And that, in a way, can sound impossible, because to be holy means to be like God. I think there's another verse in Hebrews that I never think gets enough publicity, It's one of the most extraordinary verses in the Bible, I believe. It's in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. And we read there, For by one sacrifice, that's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now just pause in that verse for a moment. 
by the sacrifice of Jesus, God has made perfect forever. That's referring to us. He has made us perfect forever. I want you to imagine for a moment a romance, and you've got a young man and a young woman, and uh, as the relationship develops, there comes one evening when uh, the young man says to the young woman, you know, you're just perfect. And uh, she responds to him and says, and I think you're just perfect. The problem comes when he says, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what it's telling us here in Hebrews 10 14. By one sacrifice, he has made us perfect. My friends, this is the great escape. We were in sin, we were in righteousness, but now because of Jesus and his sacrifice, we look to God like Jesus because we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Now, it sounds almost blasphemous to say this, but you need to get the, the full impact of this verse. By his one sacrifice, he has made us perfect forever. In the sight of God, covered with the righteousness of Jesus, we look through the lens of Jesus perfect to God. And yet, we are being made holy which acknowledges the fact that right now in this body of flesh, we know we haven't actually arrived in this body of flesh to the likeness of Christ or to the likeness of God that we would like to be. So right now, we're being made like him. Two things happening here then. We're like Jesus because we're covered with the righteousness of Jesus. That's the done, finished work of the cross. But also, we're becoming more like Jesus. And that is the ongoing work that is taking place in our lives right now. This being made holy actually explains a lot about our difficulties as Christians. Sometimes it's trials, sometimes it's sickness, sometimes it's disappointment, sometimes it's rejection, sometimes it's misunderstanding. And all these things come against us. We have these difficulties, these trials, these problems. But God can use these things to train us up into a greater likeness to Jesus Christ. And this challenges a modern worldview, because a modern worldview would make it seem that we need to be seriously committed to an easy life. But God is seriously committed to making us more like Jesus. A.W. Tozer, a very famous Christian writer, once said this, when I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. It's a great statement. When I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. So the Exodus is about holiness. God has brought us out to make us his holy people. Next we see the Exodus is about family. That's also there in verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And there's no question that the Exodus helped form the nation of Israel into one family. You've only got to think what they went through together. They were enslaved together in Egypt. And then, of course, they were caught out of Egypt. Moses begins to lead them towards the Red Sea as they escape from slavery. Here they are together, all the Israelites marching together as one people towards uh, the Red Sea. And then, of course, the Red Sea stands before them. And what are they going to do? 
what's going to happen to them. And yet God opens the Red Sea, a miracle is performed, and they go through the Red Sea, one people walking through together, and then 40 years together in the wilderness before they actually get into the promised land eventually. And during that time, what God is doing is forming this nation into his family more and more. That's something that's still recognized and celebrated to this day amongst the Jewish people. Every Passover night, which is the annual celebration of their deliverance from slavery and release towards the promised land, every Jew gathers with his family members and they sit down together and they celebrate a Passover meal. And in every Jewish family, wherever they are in the world, the youngest member of the family will say, what's different about this night to every other night? And then, as they've been doing for all the centuries, the father of the family will tell them again the story of the Exodus and how God brought them out of slavery and across the Red Sea to the Promised Land and formed them into one people and one family. It's prophetic. It speaks of what's true for us as New Testament people. In the New Testament, it says that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And we need to celebrate our peoplehood, that we are God's family together. In Israel, God brought the different tribes together. But that points forward to the fact that in the church, whole nations are being brought together to be the one family of God. I think at the present time, in our two congregations here at Gateway Church, we have at least 16 different nations represented. And yet, we are one family. But I love the variety that, that different nations bring to the one family of God. And because I've done so much traveling in my, my ministry, I've had so many examples of this. Some of them are actually quite amusing examples. But I, I can imagine, I, rather I can even remember years ago, I was in Ghana and uh, I was preaching to uh, a group of Ghanaian Christians, but we were in a jungle, literally in a jungle. Uh, it was a village church in the middle of the jungle. And uh, because it was in the middle of the jungle and, and it was the evening time, there was no light at all except that they had been given a generator. And this generator, in fact, illuminated one light bulb. And every insect in West Africa gathered <laughs> to this light bulb. But not only that, there was the biggest duck that you had ever seen that was having a fantastic feast of the insects that had gathered around uh, this light bulb. So I was trying to feed them with biblical truth, but this duck was feeding mightily on every insect in West Africa. And I think a lot of those Christians had their eye on that duck for after the meeting had concluded. And it was just so different, so different to anything I'd ever experienced before. But these, I recognize, were my people. We're the one people of God come from different nations, and we have our, our different backgrounds, but we're the one people of God. I've got a South African story, because we've got so many South Africans uh, in this church, and some of you will quickly recognize where I'm going. Uh, but uh, they do certain things differently as South African Christians. So I went to preach in this church in South Africa. There was an Afrikaans congregation. I had to be translated. And at the end of the service, the, the pastor came to me and said, my wife's not here this morning uh, because our little boy is ill, but we'd love you to come back for a meal at our place. Are you happy to come? So I said, yes, be, be very pleased to. So I'd never met this lady. We, we go to the pastor's house, and uh, 
the door opens, and I have to say, for the purpose of this illustration, that she really was a very nice-looking young lady who greeted me uh, at the door. This was the pastor's wife. And she came up to me and kissed me straight on the lips. And uh, that's what they do in South Africa, all right? So when the Christians meet one another, that's what they do. Now, I'd just like to point out here, the site leader, Richard Stamp, is a South African. So uh, if, he be, if he begins to act true, all right. <laughs> one people, but there's so much variety in the one people of God. We are family. But most importantly, we're of the same family as Jesus himself. You notice how it says that in verse 11. So that the one who makes people holy, those who are made holy, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them, to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus doesn't blush to identify himself with us. I think that's pretty incredible. To underline this, remember Jesus became like us. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. We become like Jesus. We're being made holy by the work of Jesus, but Jesus became like us. One of the ways that I found so helpful to illustrate this is by a little bit of prose written probably about 1980. Nobody knows who wrote this. Um, some of you may have heard it. It goes like this, it's called the long silence. At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringing with, with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about our suffering, snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a young black boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth a leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the centre of the vast plain, they consulted with each other, and at last they were ready to present their case, and it was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind. <clears throat> Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. And let, then let him die so that no one can doubt he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. And as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, 
Loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last one had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. Just brings home the fact that Jesus came like us. He shared our humanity totally, including death. Verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like us, fully human in every way. And so Jesus became like us in order that he might make us like him. My friends, in the end, this means, as we think of the Exodus, that we escape from isolation. We're not on our own. We are part of the family of God. And Jesus is our brother. We belong to the same family as Jesus. You and I belong. Exodus is also about deliverance from slavery. That's there in verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And to be set free from slavery, of course, is exactly what happened in the first exodus. That's what the story is all about. Israel was held in Egypt, an enslaved people, but they escaped. God set them free. But it is prophetic, and we must see the Old Testament and the New Testament, because that story is always pointing forward to a greater deliverance and to a greater freedom. And here we read of it in Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus has broken the power of our enslavement to free us from the fear of death. Now, I'm going to be real here. I think that's not quite the same as saying we're free from the fear of dying. I'm sure all of us might have concerns about that particular process. But the fear of death is in what might come after death. And this is why we make so much of the death of Jesus Christ. In my study, I have a book by the Puritan theologian John Owen, very famous uh, theologian who wrote very long books with very long words. And this book that I have in my study is called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And it's 309 pages of extremely small print. And I have to confess to you, I've never read it, but I tell you this, I've lived on the title, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. In his death, Jesus turned the tables. Surely the devil had won. Here was Jesus put on trial, put up to be derided and humiliated, to be tortured to death upon a cross. This was the people that others, this was the man that other people were following. And here he is dying in the most terrible way, in the most publicly humiliating way. Jesus dying on a cross, surely the devil had won. But Jesus always made it clear that no one would take his life from him. He would lay his life down. And Jesus said, what I will do in dying is to take the sin and the death of other people in my death. 
It was death for Jesus, but it was hell and our hell for Jesus on the cross. But it broke Satan's power over us. It was Jesus in our place, and we trust in his death for our death. And so we can have no fear about after death. We are free from the slavery of death. This is the great escape. And we do not live enslaved to the fear of death when we know one day we are going to rule the universe. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the greatest British preacher of the 20th century, lay dying. And as he lay dying, he said this to his family, don't pray for my healing. Don't hold me back from the glory. And John Wesley used to say about the early Methodists, our people die well. Jesus is the pioneer. He has blazed a a trail to glory. And by his death, he has broken the fear of death for us. And then again, uh, this uh, story of the Exodus is about atonement, which is there in verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made fully like them, fully like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, the word atonement is a big word for a huge subject in the Bible. So I'll illustrate it like this. In the Old Testament, you have the story of the Exodus, which is contained, of course, in the book of Exodus. Exodus, as a book, is about the children of Israel coming out of slavery and crossing the Red Sea and going towards the Promised Land. (coughs) But the very next book of the Old Testament is the book of Leviticus. And the book of the Leviticus is always the kind of joke book of the Bible. It's the book of the Bible that, you know, everybody is recommended not to read because the book of Leviticus is just full of huge details about sacrifices and animals being sacrificed and about priests and what they do when they sacrifice the animals. And it goes on for 27 chapters. But really, it is all about atonement, which I would defined simply as being made right with God. And that's wonderful, that such a big subject can be put so very simply, that it's about being made right with God. And here, I'm fascinated always by this in verse 17, all it actually says is a phrase about this huge subject that he made atonement for the sins of his people. That's that very, very brief statement, but it's a reminder that part of the great escape which was achieved by Jesus was that we who had been in sin and loss and condemnation would be made right with God. So today, we can simply say, I've been made right with God. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul because of Jesus. Now, I could give you hours on priests. I could give you hours on sacrifices. But all we have 
in Hebrews 2 is he made atonement for the sins of his people. In a way, that's all you need. It's so we can say, I have been made right with God. Friends, preach to yourselves, all right? That's what you need to preach to yourself. I've been made right with God. I've escaped from condemnation. I am set right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And then also, the Exodus means that God helps us. And that's in verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, there was one incident in the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament, that demonstrates that God helps his people, then it's in what we read in the book of Exodus and how God helped his people to come out of slavery and to the promised land. If you go back to the book of Exodus and to chapter 14, and I say we will keep referring back to this chapter right through the few weeks we're looking at the subject of rescue. But if you go back to Exodus chapter 14, uh, we know that what we have here is a description of the children of Israel, Hebrews as they were known at that time, having come out of Egypt uh, in one night, so they've been set free, Pharaoh had at last given in uh, to the pleas of Moses to set his people free, and the people came out as one people out of Egypt, and as one people they were marching towards the promised land. But of course, it was going to take them 40 years to get there, but before the 40 years even began, there was one enormous problem, and that was that there was a sea in front of them, and even as they looked at the sea in front of them, Pharaoh had changed his mind, and the, the armies of Pharaoh were coming up behind them. And so now, the Hebrews were there, the children of Israel were there in the desert with the armies of of, of Pharaoh behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. And they began to panic, as you can imagine. What is going to happen to us? Why don't we stay in Egypt? It was better to be slaves in Egypt than to be slaughtered out here in the desert or to drown in the sea. And they began to moan against Moses and they were in a panic and they were completely trapped and completely caught between the armies and between the Red Sea. And then there's this remarkable statement that comes next to 14 and verse 13. And Moses spoke to the people. He said, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And God helps his people. And the particular reason that Jesus can help us, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, is that he too was tempted. Verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And then you go to chapter uh, 4 of Hebrews and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses or our temptations. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let me explain something here. It says back in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 18, that Jesus suffered when he was tempted. 
and verse uh, 15 of Hebrews 4 says that Jesus was tempted in every way. The reason that Jesus suffered when he was tempted is because, as it says in Hebrews 4, he never sinned. Jesus was the only one who felt the full force of temptation without ever giving way to sin. No one other than Jesus has ever done that. Only Jesus was tempted to the uttermost, and yet he never sinned. None of us have been there. We've been tempted and we have sinned. Jesus has been there. He knew the ultimate force of all temptation, and because of that, he suffered. But, says the writer to the Hebrews, therefore he can help us when we are tempted. See, God helps his people when they're trapped. They were trapped between the armies of Pharaoh and between the Red Sea. And he can help us when we feel trapped in temptation because he understands. During the time that Jesus was on earth, he was tempted to turn back from the will of God. There was the cross with all the terrors and agonies of Calvary before him. And Jesus was tempted to turn back from the cross. And he suffered in that temptation. And his praying in the Garden of Gethsemane really demonstrates that. He was tempted to turn back from the will of God and not go to the cross, but Jesus went through all the way to Calvary. And my friends, whenever we are tempted, temptation will always involve us in some way trying to turn us from the will of God. Jesus can help us. He understands because he's been there. And so in any time of temptation, one of the ways that you can actually come through it is to say Jesus has been through this. He's been tempted in every way. He's been tempted to turn from the will of God. He understands. That's one way that you can really get through a period of temptation. God helps his people, and Jesus helps us when we are tempted. So I say this passage in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, is really the Old Testament in the New Testament. These few verses describe the Exodus story in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, this is the story of our great escape our greater deliverance. So let me just remind you of what we've said, that we are those who experience the exodus, we escape to glory. And Jesus, our great pioneer, is taking us towards that promised land. We escape to be made into the people of God, the holy people of God. We escape to be made the family of God. No longer, none of us need to live in isolation. We may be different to other people here. We may have different backgrounds, different experiences. We may come from very different cultural situations and from other nations, but we're the one family of God. We're free from isolation. We escape from slavery, from the fear of death. We are right with God. That's what atonement means. You've come from being wrong with God to being right with God because of what Jesus has done. And God helps his people. In the Old Testament trap between the armies of Pharaoh 
and the Red Sea, God helped his people. Jesus helps us when we feel we're trapped in temptation. He's been there. He knows. He understands. He can help. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What an exodus and what a saviour. Let's stand together, can we? Father, we thank you for this uh, amazing story of the Exodus. We know one of the best-known stories in the world. And uh, it tells of a people who escaped slavery by crossing a sea, that you parted the waters and you brought them through on dry land. And Father, we look back at that story, and we've read it often, and probably many of us have taught it to children and to others very often. But Father, we want to say thank you here this morning. That story is always pointing forward to a greater escape and to a greater deliverance. And we thank you that we have a greater one than Moses. We have Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We thank you that Jesus was made our perfect saviour, and he pioneered the way to glory. And Father, we thank you that we can stand here this morning as those who are set free from slavery to the fear of death. We thank you that we're God's holy people. Lord, that seems incredible to be able to say that, but because of Jesus, you see us covered in his righteousness, and we are your people, made perfect forever, but being made holy. And Lord, we thank you so much that we are family, that we belong to one another and that we belong to the same family as Jesus Christ. Yeah. Thank you for what you've delivered us from and for what freedom that you've brought us into. Yeah. We celebrate the great triumph of the Exodus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.